So the comedy, this is directing me towards where I need to be speaking truth into the business industry, right? But then the comedy is the means by which I temper my own internal rage and the means by which I make sure that other people can actually get the message. Leaders who laugh and help others laugh can create positive impact. Now, I'm not talking about so-called humor that is clicky or one that bypasses pain or exploits or belittles. That is not anywhere in the ballpark of the humor I'm talking about today. I'm talking about that jolt of joy that comes from a deep belly laugh while feeling known and understood. Now I'm talking about the clarity that comes from that shared laughter experience that takes the edge off the rage and the pain and the uncertainty. I'm talking about that sense of connection that comes from the beautiful combination of a good laugh that also teaches us a hard truth. Yes, laughing and taking a pause and taking ourselves so seriously is good for all aspects of life and work. Leaning into your humor authentically and intentionally can turn pain into something productive that becomes medicine for your work, your community, and also for your soul. Our workplaces need more laughter. Our homes need more laughter. The world needs more laughter. And I don't know about you, but I know I need more laughter. There have been times of late where it's like the smallest thing sets my family into a laugh fest, usually triggered by something we were watching on TV or something one of us said that just tickled the proverbial funny bone. This communal laughter, it feels like a welcomed exhale when I didn't even know I was holding my breath. And I know many of us have been holding our breaths a lot over this last year. Every time I feel lighter and clearer after I wipe the tears of joy away from my face, which got me thinking growing up, I got the message that humor and comedy were for those who were not serious about life or about work. I was always equal parts annoyed (laughs) and envious of the class clowns and those that seemed so at ease using humor as they led I wanted to focus on work, but I also appreciated their ability to lighten the mood and not take themselves too seriously while building a sense of connection. Comedy and humor can be a powerful catalyst for communicating. They can bring people together and is often memorable by making an impact through teaching and entertaining. Today's Unburdened Leader guest has the gift of teaching powerful business truths and insights through her gift for comedy. And y'all, this is truly a gift. Rachel K. Albers is a digital strategist and business comedian. True story. As the founder and creative director of RKA Inc., a branding, web design, and digital marketing studio based outside of Chicago. A little shout out to a fellow Midwesterner. Rachel helps thought leaders and visionary entrepreneurs all over the world stand out online without selling their soul or playing the manipulation game, which I am so here for. When not crafting epic, unforgettable brands for her clients, Rachel hosts Awkward Marketing, a business comedy show, blending fun-sized business advice with storytelling and sketch comedy. Think of her as a one-woman SNL of biz TV. I recommend her link to everyone I know, especially if I need to pick me up and to learn good business strategy. It is worth it. So we'll make sure to have this link in the bio. 
Now, during this show, I really want you to pay attention to how Rachel's skill for observation fueled her use of comedy starting at a really young age. Notice the connection Rachel makes between her pain and her use of comedy personally and professionally. And listen for the wisdom Rachel drops on the slippery slope of entrepreneurship and owning your own business. And now I am so happy to welcome Rachel K. Albers to the podcast. Rachel, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I kind of think it was all meant to be and that this moment was like predestined. That's how I'm feeling about meeting with you right now. (laughs) That's powerful. That is powerful. I have been watching you um, online. I, I, you know, social media gets a bad rap for a very, very good reason. But let me tell you, I have met the coolest leaders online, people that are just like three-dimensional, awesome, cool. And that is you. And I'm really, really excited for listeners today to have a little snippet of your awesomeness and depth. Um, You just really offer so much in all you do. And so I want to kick off by just, you know, for those who do know you or know of you, you're known for your integration of humor, business, and storytelling in your work. I, I mean, honestly, anytime I, I, I scroll through Instagram and I'm going through stories, I, I have to go to the bathroom. I've had two kids, all right? So like, I have to go pee because I'm laughing so hard and I might pee my pants because you bring so much joy, but you also are like nailing truths so much um, in your work. So, but I want to touch on the comedy part of it because this is not something I've seen done the way that you do. That's it's it's wholehearted comedy, and and I know that behind comedy is often pain. Usually there is, and I just I just know this in the line of work that I'm in, and that comedy is also a catalyst of healing. I know from me getting to know you and experiencing your work, I've experienced some salve on the wounds of just being a leader right now. And so I'm curious for you, how has comedy been healing for you? Well, I totally agree with you that, that some of the greatest comedy comes from pain. And I always tell my clients and the people that I teach about creating their own content. I always say that my greatest content comes from the stuff that pisses me off. Right. And if we know that the roots of anger grow in sadness, then yes, I'm basically saying my greatest comedy comes from my greatest despair. Um, But, you know, how has comedy been healing for me? What I realized with using Awkward Marketing, which is my business sketch comedy show, um, was when I would get frustrated about the things that I was seeing happening in the marketing space, for example, and just it would like make my body light up with sometimes even rage, I started to pay attention to that. I started to say, what is this trying to teach me, right? Like it intersected with whatever other like, you know, enlightenment was happening in my life. And I'm like, wait a minute, this anger might be trying to tell tell me something, right? (laughs) I'm like, maybe it's trying to tell me the content I should create. And I say that kind of half jokingly. Um, And so I started to pay attention when I would get frustrated about what I was seeing in the business and marketing world and say, what is this trying to tell me about how I need to show up in my business? Because what this is pointing me towards is there's something we're not talking about. There's an elephant in the room we're not addressing. There's a need here that needs to be addressed. What is this telling me about how I need to show up? So the comedy, but so, so this is, you know, directing me towards 
where I need to be speaking truth into the business industry, right? But then the comedy is the the means by which I temper my own internal rage and the means by which I make sure that other people can actually get the message, right? So it's healing in that the comedy is making helping me turn my 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 pain into something productive that's actually helping to heal the pain itself, right? Like I'm turning the pain into the solution, right? Well, yeah, and and so I'm hearing though it's twofold, and I think that and I just you know when we have meaning and purpose that is healing in our work mm-hmm. in our life, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm hearing for you, you're taking you're you're really embracing curiosity. Right. You're, you're, you're noticing where your rage is and my gosh, we're, we're having this conversation in a day where there's a lot of rage and grief happening in our culture with the recent verdict around the killing of Breonna Taylor. And, and so this is a timely conversation about getting curious about your rage. And, and then you go deeper even and saying, how is this going to help me? But then how is this also going to be meaningful and helpful to others? You really bring them together. And that's not a quick process, right? Is this something that just flows quickly? Or what's your rumble as you start? What's your process as you start to notice, okay, this is lighting me up. And then how do you go from there to offering something of value to you personally, but also professionally to those that you lead and serve? So it's kind of twofold. You know, now I have enough experience with this, with, with the catharsis that you just described. Right. And, um, that I can recognize a little bit faster. It took me a while to actually see what was happening and create and to be able to observe it long enough to turn that into rules that I could then use to observe, Oh, this is happening again. Wow. This is so we're going there today, Rebecca. Oh my God. I'm boggling my own mind. Okay. Let me take a step back. (laughs) So that happens. Whatever I just said, I don't think I could ever say again. I don't even fully understand it myself. That whole thing happens. Really the way that I do it is sometimes it's just as simple as I see something out in the world. It pisses me off and I know enough to go into Siri on my phone and go, Hey Siri. Oh, I shouldn't do that. Hey, you know, Hey Siri, (laughs) whisper. Uh, make a note that says awkward marketing. And then I'll describe whatever the thing I do, like a, a bus passed me on the street and it had a, you know, campaign on it that made me mad. And so I'm like, Hey Siri, awkward marketing, you know, fat phobia in the news. Right. And then I'll describe it a little bit. And I just trust that future me is going to come back for this and hold the space that I need to get to whatever that needs to be spoken later, like whatever the two steps ahead are. And sometimes it just flows through right? Sometimes it does just fire so that I observe something in the world that's like, that's bullshit. And then I'm like, wait a minute though, what does that mean? It's bullshit because, and like, it's already happening. And those are the moments I try to teach my clients to pay attention to, because those are the moments when no matter what, if you are capable of doing it, you need to stop what you are doing and create and channel, right? Sometimes I say, I put a pin in this and say, I will channel later. I will turn this into a comedy bit later. But sometimes it's happening whether I like it or not. And I think it's radical and it's healing just to be able to say, I'm going to give this the space that it's demanding versus trying to compartmentalize it later. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And so you just have a practice in place and sometimes you go for it when you have the space. And if not, then you trust that you will circle back to it and if and when it's needed. And I think sometimes people overthink that stuff and bypass it and just don't take the time to document 
the rage, document the anger, the pain, and and whether that's for personal healing or, but most importantly, for work. We knowing what we're against really does help clarify what we're for. Oh, I'm, she's pointing at me. I'm getting the like nailed it look from Rachel. You've right literally now. just described like my what I call my reverse niching. So you and I are souls. We are literally kindred spirits. We've just been married right now. I feel like in some weird universe because I talk about reverse niching <laughs> is is how I help a lot of uh, in the business world. Let's make this fun and practical here for a second. The popular question is to say, who's your ideal client? And I find that most people that I work with have a really hard time with that. But when I ask them, who will you absolutely positively never work with? That gives me some juicy stuff. Then we can reverse engineer that. So when I teach people how to do this, by the way, I literally say to them, Rebecca, I say, sometimes to discover what you're for, you have to start with what you're against. And that's what awkward marketing is, right? Because I'm, I'm showing you know, kind of what I'm for when it comes to business and marketing, partially by defining what I'm against. And that's what the comedy comes from, right? That's where I get to create all the fun characters doing ridiculous things that we can all collectively laugh at together and say, yeah, wait a minute, something's going on here, right? (laughs) Yeah. And if you have not tuned into Rachel's Instagram or her awkward marketing, and you just need a space on the internet that just gives you a little bit of a break and a little bit of joy, which is absolutely and play is essential to running the marathon of adulting and being human and leading, then you need to check it out. We'll make sure we get that to you. So, all right, before we get to there, I want to circle back to this, but first I want to know about, I want to know about when you discovered your love for comedy and I want to hear how it helped you move through a specific pain story. Like, yeah, take me back to when you realized this is, this is my jam. It's all, I mean, it'll tell you a lot about me to say it was through others, people's praise, other people noticing me being funny and validating me for it that helped me see that I had it, right? That helped me see that that was a part of, um, that was something that I enjoyed. So I, I look back, I was just recently asking myself, gosh, now I'm really seeing how much comedy has been a coping mechanism my whole life with the persistent terror that I'm a horrible person. Like, don't all of us kind of secretly fear that we're horrible human beings <laughs> or maybe just me, but I clearly developed my comedy based on getting other people saying, oh, we like this part of you. And then I just kept developing that muscle. When I look back on it now, when I, if you were to describe it in another way, it would be like I was in third grade and I auditioned for the play and I did this character that was like a Southern guy, you know, and everybody loved it. And I had been an outcast up until that point. That was a big old weirdo, always broken the rules, got almost no social validation until I became this clown. And then it was Mm. like, yeah, Rachel's super weird, but she's hilarious. So we keep her around just kind of to amuse us. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. You know? And is there a time that you recall that that comedy really helped you move through any, a pain story? I hear you saying, you know, it helped you belong or did it help you fit in? I don't know if it helped me fit in. I've never fit in. And, and I've, I've enjoyed that actually. It's been kind of nice being on the outside, but um, cause then I can watch everybody and then make funny observations about them. Right. <laughs> like if I'm sitting outside being like, I've never really fully felt that I was on the inside of anything. And that like in and of itself, the, the maybe not belonging um, and the pain of feeling like I didn't belong 
forced me to then observe and then I, I developed this comedic skill, right? Where I could then turn those observations into sketches, into characters, into, um, I mean, that's just even how I exist in the world. Like I'm telling you a story and I'm becoming, you know, I'm becoming my mom. I'm becoming my mom. You know, I'm telling you what my mom said in her voice, right? Um, so, okay. But to answer your question <laughs> about like a specific pain story, like I hate to say it, but if I'm really being honest with myself, I think humor has helped me cope with every piece of pain. So then I'm like, okay, let's choose one. Let's choose one. I think, you know, um, when I, my parents were getting a divorce when I was seven years old and I was getting a lot of heat back home because I think that my parents were projecting their pain onto me and like, you know, they couldn't control their marriage falling apart, but maybe they could control their weirdo daughter right? So they like spent a lot of extra energy trying to shape me according to whatever they thought I needed to be. And so I would go on the schoolyard and I did this thing and I called it channels. And I would stand in front of my school, my elementary school, like before we went in for the school day and the, and the kids would yell out a television channel and I would become the channel and do a sketch. And then somebody oh would goodness. else, I was my own whose line is it anyway? Just me, myself, and I. I've always been the one woman, whatever, of anything, right? Now I call myself the I call myself the one woman SNL of biz comedy. That's the best way to get a job title is give it to yourself, right? But that's what I would do. I, I was struggling at home feeling like I was a horrible human being. And then I go to school and I'm creating these sketches and people are loving them. And how could you not then pursue that, right? It's the, you know, how could you not? That's where you're getting belonging, but that's also where you are creating my own new reality. Comedy and art is such a powerful thing because we can create, we might not be able to create the major world level change that we want to, or we might not be able to escape an abusive home environment, but we can create an artificial reality and we can practice. There's Augusto Boal who pioneered the theater of the oppressed said, theater is a, revo- is a rehearsal of revolution. And I think mm. art and in general is our way of practicing creating the new world we so desire and rehearsing the revolution we also need. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking back to the elementary school girl, you commanding your school before school starts. And so, because I think sometimes people use funny to hide. And I'm getting the sense that it it was a way to connect, but it also was power. You know, when there's so many things you can't control, it's like, all right, I'm leaning into this. I'm not going to hide. I'm leaning in to all of who I am. And this, this may sound like cliche, but I'm going to ask it anyways. I mean, did you ever have a sense of people laughing, like the difference between laughing at and laughing with? Because I think sometimes people, when they're funny, they're cultivating people to laugh at them. And I don't feel comfortable with that. But I'm getting the sense for you, it was a with, it was a we experience. And that's a big part of at least what I've seen of you I can recently. In my mind, I'll tell you this, when people were laughing at me, it wasn't because I was being funny, right? And and that was very, and, I, uh, right? and so um, I knew, so you're right, I was not making myself the butt of my, of the joke, almost it was as if I was using the comedy to turn their laughter from at me to with me. Right. I was, 
because I was weird. I was very weird. Okay. And I look back at some of my behaviors and now I see as an adult, I'm like, damn, those are legit warning signs. This is what they put in books about if a child is acting this way, they might be having trouble at home. Right. I didn't know, but like the kids, how are they supposed to know that? My my fellow eight-year-olds are going to know that I'm somehow my weird behavior is a result of my like emotional damage. No. So I was just weird and I was a little bit of an outcast and I did experience them laughing at me. And so I was like, wait a minute. I would like, if you're going to laugh, it better be for a damn good reason. It's going to be because I'm hilarious. I mean, I think that's what I did. So then I was like, wait a minute, hold on. Let me, let me redirect your laughter over for something that serves both of us. Right? Like, it's gotta be. What totally. Was <laughs> but that's power. That's power. I mean, and it's not a surprise that you got into marketing then because there's that's a lot of power, there's a lot of responsibility, and there's a lot of harm done in it. And but this is I think that's interesting. So just even the the pain of not and again, just whatever feeling like feeling like an outcast is what you said. And we I just keep thinking back and just this world that we have of this is how you should be. And I, I feel like we're at a reckoning point of trying to really blow up a lot of that stuff versus and so for you you just you leaned in you leaned into the awkward and channeled it in a way that didn't make you the butt of the joke but create a culture and a sense of just a community of laughter a community of humor and i'll add on to that like at the same time um Really, this is where I started chiseling out my identity as an outsider. So like I was telling you, by feeling like I didn't belong, it my way of coping and compensating for that was of observing people and being able to see them for what they were, right? And then the more I did that, the more I wanted to stay on the outside, right? And so I might have continued to... to play into like, what's that confirmation bias? Mm -hmm. um, I think I, it has shaped my po politics. It has made me a radical. I think all of that begins in that feeling of not belonging and then earning an identity and getting validated because I didn't belong. And as a result, I could make observations that were super funny about people. But then at the same time, like I consciously kept myself away from people. Right. And honestly, I see that as a good thing at this point. I see yeah. I've been able, that's why I think I'm tethered to compassion um, in a way that people who are still deep in the system are struggling because this isn't yeah. telling us to be cruel, right? So I'm still going deep. And I'm boggling my own brain. Anyway, you get it, Rebecca. I know you know what I'm talking about. I do. And I, I'm just thinking of Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness and just this, uh, it's really a book I keep going back to right now um, and talking about belonging. And it sounds like you know, you talk about the more that you were on the outside, the more you realized that shaped you and you didn't want to try and fit in. You wanted to belong to you and who you were. And I just feel that in my body right now, that's where the freedom is. And you, you can't see Rachel right now, but she's doing an hallelujah praise, like hands in the air, head shaking right now. As I you know, I told that. you I was supposed to be on this interview with you today, that that was why what you just said was why I was supposed to talk to you today. So how about Tell them apples? Tell me more. Why, why are you saying that? It, you're unlocking a piece for me. Like you're saying something that, so when you say, um, I didn't want to belong to the group, I wanted to belong to myself. I think you've just described my journey, like my hero's journey or whatever you want to call it. Like my 
purpose at this, I don't know if it's for my entire lifetime, but certainly for the place that I'm at in my lifetime, that is still my pursuit. I've spent the last, I'm 36 years old, 36 years almost trying to learn how to belong to myself. And I'm still working Mm. on it. I'm still working on it. So that is like, you just described my whole like reason for being. (laughs) Yeah. But I I think Rachel, that really is for all of us. Cause when you said that, I could just even feel that tears well up for me because it's like, well, me too. Me too. I know what I should do. I know who I'm supposed to be and I'm doing air quotes. Um, I'm done with it and shedding that. And it sounds like you had a jump start than so many of us who were good at the fitting in and the awkwardness and just you leaning into, okay, I'm going to channel the laughing at to hopefully we can laugh together as a survival mechanism and then saying, wait, I don't want to fit in with you. I'm going to stay here and observe and create and figure this stuff out. It still has a price though. Mm. What's the, mm-hmm. It still has a price. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the world we live in is harsh. It, it, it doesn't, it's not, I think mm-hmm. there's more, my husband calls them safe zones. We started talking about safe zones like back in the day when we went to the mall and he, I would go to anthropology and he would go to a different store because he's just like, I can't sit on a couch for $6,000. It makes me angry. <laughs> so he would find his places to go shop like at Sur or something. And, and so we have more safe zones. I think we're creating that with community and I'm seeing that and that's, people are fierce and protective about it. And I think what you're offering, that's why I'm so drawn to your work because it's more than business. I think the echoes of what you're naming, when we can laugh at the pain of what you're calling up and out and in is, is really medicine and that's powerful leadership. So I'm, I'm really grateful, really grateful for you rumbling with this with me. Mm. You, you've also shared, and I remember I DM'd you when you talked about this, that you struggle with anxiety and I'm curious, when do you notice your anxiety most? Um, when don't I, uh, identify my anxiety most? Um, gosh, you know, I feel it at this point in the, in the pandemic, I almost feel like I haven't not felt it for so long. I forget what it's like to not be in a physiological state of, of distress because I, mm. I have been, um, because of what's happening in the world, because of what's happening at home, because of what's happening in myself, I think for since the pandem- pandemic really started, um, been more in phys- And when I say physiological, like my heart is beating faster. I feel the tension in my chest. I'm in constant physical pain um, and just navigating that. So I'm having a hard time answering that question because I'm like, I don't know how I notice it. I don't know how, how I don't notice it. Um, and again, it's also, I think a lot of uh, the conversation has been like demonizing fear during this mm-hmm. whole thing. Like, oh, totally. like, and fear is a weak state. And I'm like, dude, oh, fear, it's just like anger is a bell sending me a signal. Hey girl, look at this. This is what you need to be looking at. Same thing with fear. Yeah. And I refuse to like allow myself too long. Cause I still do it to feel shame that I am experiencing fear at, to a degree that it is now affecting me physically. And I think that is maybe part of that is physiological. Like it's part of like my, I was born this way, but no, I think my anxiety is mostly man-made <laughs> and, uh, and I'm 
paying attention to it right now. I don't think that I need to be shooing it away. I'm doing a lot of work. I'm doing a lot of work over here, Rebecca, but I'm in a constant state of anxiety and I think it's trying to tell me something. You know what I'm saying? So I do. And I <clears throat> thank you for naming that about fear and getting demonized. I'm, I'm, I feel very frustrated with those long-term messages. They do such harm. And I've seen so many leaders face down because they're like, why am I still, you know, feeling these things? I'm like, because you dared to care because you tried because you're human. And instead of trying to all become a bunch of robots and power over our own systems that are just like, like you said, there's so much wisdom there. What do you do? So what I'm saying is I don't even know how to notice my anxiety anymore because it is my reality all the time. It feels like, whereas Mm. I didn't feel this way. I see. I see. Before okay. March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so for you, your homeostasis is just. It has in. been elevated to yes, my homeostasis. Oh. So that's why I'm like, dude, I don't even know how do I how do I recognize my anxiety? How do I not? It's always yeah. here, and I'm okay with that in the sense of, I mean, I'm not okay with that. I am doing the work that needs to be done, though. Like I feel that I am taking care of myself, and so then it's just my body in part telling me to pay attention to a very terrifying time in human history and in my own personal journey, right? Like maybe the anxiety is inevitable at this point and I'm coping, I'm learning how to cope with it, you know? So that's where I'm at. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. What are the things that you're doing to take care of yourself? You mentioned that a couple of times. Um, so now what am I doing to take care of myself? Um, because, oh man, at the beginning of this thing, I was doing all the self-destruction, right? And so I've been very proud that I've like pried my fingers away from all of the different, like anything you could imagine that people use to try to escape their emotions. That was me, March, April, May, right? Um, and so now uh, we're talking in the beginning of the fall, things have, have changed. So now it might be something like this morning, I will just go and take a hot shower right? Like those are like, if I'm feeling truly panic attack levels of distress, where I am like, my body wants to tell me it's dying. I'll hop in a shower. I'll get some ice, put it on my face, bring myself back into um, the moment and the body right now versus the, the spiral thing that's happening in my head. Um, but on a general day-to-day basis, when I'm just like dealing with the regular everyday 24 seven anxiety, it's a lot of processing and a lot of reaching out for community, like belonging, back to belonging. My people are are helping me through this. That's pretty much the only um, thing that I can do. And using my work like mindful, like a mindfulness anchor. So mm. being in the day and having an alert comes up that says RBG has just um, has just died, and having my experience of that. And at the same time, because of my values and my priorities, knowing I do have to get work done. And so bringing myself back to the work as an anchor. And then when I get taken away again, being in that moment and bringing myself back to the work as an anchor. And so that's what I think is making more people so exhausted during the pandemic is we're all coming back again. We're all practicing mindfulness to varying degrees of success bringing us ourselves back to the priorities, bringing ourselves back to what we need to do. And we're really tired because we've got legitimate things taking us away, legitimate fears, legitimate challenges and stresses and additional, you know, so that's it. So I'm just trying to keep coming. The work has been healing in in that way because it's my anchor back into reality when the pain of living during 
2020 makes mm-hmm. me want to just spiral for the next six months, you know? Yeah. I've been writing and talking a lot about certainty anchors and it sounds like for you work is that certainty anchor, but it's also this beautiful creative outlet and it's bigger than you, which is great. You touched on this a little bit about going in and out of work, but is there anything else that you do to navigate your anxiety as you're, you have work deadlines and obligations, anything else that you've been doing that's been helpful? Being really honest with my clients. Um, That's been a new thing for me, a new shift because uh, before pandemic, like pre-pandemic RKA was, would shame herself into toughing it out. Even if she knew that delivering this, this thing to the client tonight wasn't actually going to move the needle for them. They didn't need that. I would just push myself because that's what you do. So this year, oh man, this week even has been a, has been a real practice of humility because it's also very humbling to have to go to your clients and say, listen, I can't deliver this today. Uh, Here's why. And that's it. It's not a negotiation at that point. And that's how I'm taking care of myself. That's how I'm managing the anxiety, giving myself more time. That's hard. I'm struggling, but I've been doing that. I've been doing that. Well, I, I actually, I think that's an incredible leadership practice of, you know, that practice of humility and deep honesty but not apologizing and over explaining. It's like, here's what's going on. And that takes a lot of trust and in, in, in mutual kind of contracting, obviously with your clients. But I, I, I find that when people communicate with me more and say, hey, this is what's going on, heads up on this, that fosters more trust, that fosters more connection. And then I could say, oh gosh, now I'm panicking a little. I still need this from you. So what are my options? And we have a conversation and then we both are on the same page we're aligned, we feel good, and we move forward. And we could do that in personal or professional life, that practice. But I, yeah, a yeah. lot of people, that's, it's really courageous to say, hey, guess what? I'm not going to be able to do this. And here's why, period. And not and you in know like, what? The, the impulse that I'm denying also that I want to into this is to lie. And to just be like realizing <laughs> how much I have done that. Because or to try to spin it to be something that society says is a good enough reason. Right. Oh, you know, so yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Say something that society says is a good enough reason. I think so many people can relate to that. I know I am because I I've been in those situations and I dress rehearse. Maybe this is good enough. And maybe this is good enough versus truth. doesn't have to be the raw unedited truth, but it's just, here, here is appropriate boundaried for the relationship and the time truth. And that's our power. That's and then power. not needing them, like the pre piece you said before about not over explaining, then not looking to them to validate that either, right? Because there's right. another, like, to like, why do we do that? Why do we try to find a socially acceptable reason for telling the client we need to push a deadline? Because we're, we're afraid they're not going to accept whatever other thing we are going to say. So then we do say the other thing and we over explain it so that that person can validate and and accept it, right? Because we're so insecure and we're also so like all these things. So I had to get comfortable and I'm like, like, and actually when I say I had to get comfortable as if it's in the past and I've really mastered this, it was yesterday we're talking about this. So yesterday with multiple clients, I had to go to them and say, I have to postpone. This is why. 
here are the options in terms of times, period. And I had so much of a desire to be like, to really over like stretch what was going on and to like over apologize and to like over like um, assure myself that they weren't mad at me. And it, like you said, it was such a huge shift for me to just show up and say, here's my, here's where I'm at. Here's why. Here's what we can do next and not ask for permission and not ask for, I knew of course, Rebecca, that I was talking to people that I wasn't going to throw them into emergency. So there was an awareness there that like, I wasn't saying this to somebody who was like, but I, but like it's life or death, right? So I, by not giving them the option to argue with me, I was also doing that in a situation where that was appropriate. Right. Like right. if I was a doctor explaining to my patient why I can't be there for the chi- birth of their child, it might be a different story. But we're talking about somebody's <laughs> website here. You know what I'm saying? Like we're OK. And it's not it's also not like a website that's like integral to the election or something. Right. It's just like a website that sells doodads. You're OK until Thursday. You know what I'm saying? So that's, <laughs> that's perspective. Right. You know, and, and the burden of shame really gets the best of us. Well, it's a universal emotion. We all have our own unique burdens of shame. And then we have these parts of us that want to come in and keep that from showing up and saying, see, you're a fraud. Who do you think you are? You suck. You're a failure. All, whatever, you're found out. And then there are these other parts of us that, and, and really that's, and for me, that's where I think it's self-leadership, right? That place of confidence and courage, but also compassion for ourselves in the moment saying, I got you to ourselves. I'm going to talk to the client. I'm going to set some boundaries here. Yes, this isn't life or death. So yes, I'm going to create space here with these clients, but I'm going to give my energy for this person that really would be in a pickle if I didn't show up here. And we negotiate that, but we show up for ourselves when we create and realign those expectations and boundaries. And, and again, within the contract. And, and But I just cut my teeth I, I, and I worked in politics and advertising right out of college and it was over deliver or do everything early, blow everyone away, custom. And I love good customer experience. I know that's a big deal to you too, creating experiences. That's a value of yours too. But it was in a sense that it was tied to our worthiness. It wasn't about the job. And the sense that if someone wasn't above and beyond delighted, you failed. That's the message I got early on. And I think that that has just done so much harm to our well-being and to how we work. Yeah. And I mean, I think I'll take it a step further to say, oh, this is why like work being how I heal myself is a really dangerous place. And I probably have a lot more work to do um, because <laughs> they say that, you know, a lot of people who become entrepreneurs do it because they are filling this need to be needed. Okay. So like you were saying about like over delivering for our, and how that connects to our worthiness. I think those of us who have created our own businesses are somewhat do it because uh, we are addicted to other people needing us, right? We're addicted to the validation and the false, the false healing that that seems to give us, but really it doesn't because as soon as we drop a ball, then we have this deep shame that comes up because we've tied our self-worth into other people needing us. And then we've let them down and we, ha- you know what I'm saying? So well, then it just, from that lens, yeah, that just reoccurs, that replays the cycle of shame. But I guess I would expand that to say that our pain inspires often, entrepreneurs are often inspired by their pain and some amazing things happen and are created for the world because 
of people's pain stories. But if they're not dealing with that and unburdening it, which is kind of the heart of this show and me talking to people about that, um, then then we don't get our stuff out in the world and it's harder. And so how do we keep rising from that pain? And and I would say, yeah, I mean, we are now in a, on steroids in a culture that's Addicted is a strong word, but dependent for me, I will say, on immediacy and feedback and jonesing for the superficial feedback, the likes, the email, whatever, email replies. But I I think it also, some of the most hurting folks have also done some of the most incredible things on this planet and holding space for the complexity of that. And that even admits their deep pain and and what they're putting out in the world is for the greater good even, but they're not thriving. And I think that to really run the marathon, it's just what you're talking about. We have to do the work. We have to get clear in our boundaries. We have to get clear in our pain story. And it's not sustainable if we don't give our permission to circle back. And that's Lisa, my next question. I saw you post recently and I really needed this on that day because I'm I've been spending years cutting down on all the things. I've, I'm like, I have always doing too much and I'm really editing that. And it takes a while to strain, rein that in. And you've been going through a rebrand and you said, yeah, my rebrand's three months late and it's still going to be late. And it's going to basically, it's going to get done. I'm working on it. And you just wrote this huge permission slip publicly. Like, And it was this permission of, wait, this is my thing that I'm doing. And yeah, I wanted to have it done. And sometimes we set these deadlines that set us up for feeling horrible. And we box ourselves in a corner. And and so I'd love to hear you share about your plans along with the delays and the permission you gave yourself to take the time that you needed to get it done. Yeah. And it's so crazy because it's like, okay, we put an arbitrary deadline for ourselves on things. And then we don't meet the deadline and we feel crappy about it. But in my case, and that all of that was true for me, but in my case, I had to set the deadline and I had to blow it. And then I had to reflect on it to get to the place where I was able to finally make some freaking breakthroughs in the rebrand itself. So the arbitrariness of the deadline and the shame that I felt and then the reflection that I did upon it was all part of the plan. Uh, If there's a plan, I don't know. I actually don't necessarily believe that, but it certainly was part of what I now see as a beautiful gift that came from that experience. So it's like, could I have avoided this by not setting an arbitrary deadline? No, because the arbitrary deadline was part of it. So that's a piece of this. Um, I was supposed to launch my brand a few months ago. That's what I thought. That's what I wanted. That's what I felt was best. But there were some unresolved questions. And for me, what's really meta about all of this, Rebecca, is I build brands for people, okay? I work with people to shape their brands. And so I'm rebranding. And what complicates it is while rebranding, I'm observing the art of branding and learning things about branding and reflecting upon branding. So I'm in kind of like an inception type experience right now. (laughs) And all of it, all of it was part of like helping me access the answers I was seeking. All of it. The failure to launch is what will help me to launch, right? That's right. Is everything is really very like poetic and confusing today coming out of my mouth, but this is where we are, Rebecca. It's a beautiful time, but that's where I'm at. So here's the thing. 
I don't know when this show is going to come out, but I have given my, so you guys, you guys were going to see whether this happens or not. I've given myself the deadline now of September. I will launch by the end of September, come hell or high water, however messy it is, because at some point you can learn all the lessons. You'll always be learning lessons and you just got to freaking get out of your own damn way. So thank God I learned the lesson, but now part of the next step of the lesson is giving myself permission to launch an unfinished product because that's what I teach my clients. Every website is an unfinished website. It's never a finished website. Every brand is an unfinished brand. Every, you know what I'm saying? And so that's what I'm surrendering myself to now. Rebecca, we'll see how it goes. You guys can check on me to see, do I make it to my goal? Do I do it? And, and what do I learn if I don't? <laughs> Stay tuned for more. <laughs> you know, you, you touched on a couple of things. We do need those deadlines. That's, that's part of how our just from neuroscience, how we work and that will move us forward. But if our worthiness and safety get tied to those deadlines, that's where we start to spin out. And I, it's the other day I said to my husband, because you were saying I'm behind on my rebrand. And I've been thinking about that feeling of behind and catching up and how that's just jacked me up. And I said to my husband, I am not behind today. I got a lot to do, <clears throat> but I am not going to live from the mindset of being behind. I'm done with it. And he just kind of looked at me like, okay, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and it's a, it's a fight because if you look at a lot of the systems and culture right now, it really is a power over a top down. It's good, bad, up, down, right, wrong. This, you know, are you behind? Are you caught up? Are you, you know, and it can just do a number, especially for me, these perfectionist protectors of mine, the one way that's helped me, I don't know about you, is I'm like, okay, everything's beta, everything's beta. And that's like, you talk about shipping when I'm finished, that one, that word is hard for me. But if I'm like, it's just beta, and I'm, it'll be beta till I breathe my last breath, that helps me be able to just do something that is, you know, all the hashtag perfectly imperfect, but like truly, that <laughs> you know it truly it truly helps that so i i appreciate that thank you for sharing that and, and i love that tension of setting the deadline not meeting it and then your rumble to okay i've been learning learning now i just need to ship and and I'm, i and I'm love on. everything is beta put it on a t-shirt i'm googling it is that exists everything is beta.com let's see probably <laughs> somebody probably misinterpreted or used it for me so far, so good. You might be able to buy this domain. I don't know, but I feel like there's something here. Monetize everything, people. That's the message I want you to get from me more than anything else. <laughs> Monetize your pain to whatever degree you can. Come on. Somebody's got to profit from this shit. And it, you know, so. <laughs> there you go. Beta. I don't know. Everything is beta. I need that tattooed on both of my butt cheeks. This is going to help me through life for real. <laughs> and now we have that visual. Um, so. I want to circle back to when I first learned about you and your work. My DMs blew up when you did a video sketch on vulnerability because folks know that I'm certified in Brene Brown's work and deeply a believer in her research. And so everyone's like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? I'm like, okay, okay. And I, after recovering from that laugh cry situation and running to the bathroom. So I didn't pee my pants. You'd made this video, how vulnerability made me rich. And I, I, I'm not going to do justice to it. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes and I really, it's required viewing. And I, I but I'd like to hear why did you create that piece? I want to hear from you why you decided to create that piece on how vulnerability made me rich. Cause it really was one of the most powerful messages on vulnerability in business. 
next to hearing it from Brene Brown herself, who did the research. Goodness um, gracious. Wait a minute. You nailed it. And that people have gotten it wrong and wrong and wrong. And Brene keeps talking about it and really explaining what vulnerability is and isn't. And you just, it was so done. And, and then just your sketch was just. So this would be a great example of seeing something in the wild that's like, ah, that pisses me off. And then putting a pin in it and putting it into my notes and being like, I got to do something about this. And this is often how I back into my best content because in this case, I did not set out to make a video about vulnerability. I did not set up to make a video about Brene Brown or anything. Like I, she's, she's in my world. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not like a Brene Brown devotee. Right. And so I never was like, you know what? I got to make my Brene Brown video. I just backed into her where it just, I had no choice but to make a Brene Brown video. So what happened was I was talking to a girlfriend, very successful, business owner and leader, right? She's made millions of dollars and she's sitting there telling me why she's like really wants to do a podcast, but she's got to wait because of her of all people has to have the most amazing podcast idea that's ever hit the history of podcasts. And I'm just watching her from the outside, seeing how she's getting in her own way, seeing how she's being a perfectionist. So that was part one, right? And I put a little pin in that, in that conversation being like, ah, the whole reason, the whole point is you got to do it. Like, don't wait until you have the great idea because the great idea comes in doing the bad idea. The great idea comes when you try something, right? Mm -hmm. And then combine that with the pin I put every freaking third day, people getting on their Instagram stories, right? And being like, hey, it's me, like vulnerable share, which, you know, you'll watch the sketch and you'll see that's how it made it in. But like people getting on and mis like abusing the word vulnerability when they're not really actually being vulnerable, right? So both of those notes end up in my long giant notepad with awkward marketing ideas. And when I do sit down for a few days, part of my process is when I'm ready to put together a season, I'll sit down with all my notes and then I'll go through them. And the ones that I'm channeling right then, those are the ones that are going to make it to the top. But I look for, and so in this, I took that situation with my friend and her podcast. And I took the situation of, oh, I got to do something fun with the making fun of the people who like get on their Instagram stories talking about vulnerability, right? And they just revealed themselves to be the same thing, right? Because my friend in that moment, what we think that is vulnerable. Like you're sitting there being like, I want to start a podcast, but I feel like I've got to create the greatest podcast ever. What, what our, what the misinterpretation of vulnerability is, is that, that the way to be vulnerable is to go on Instagram and be like, guys, vulnerable share. I feel really scared today about starting a podcast. I feel like I'm not good enough. And then they'll like start crying and they'll think that that in and of itself is vulnerability. No, it's doing the podcast, even though you're scared. That's the vulnerability. That's it. Nailed it. Nailed. And in all that, of course, I'm stumbling into, I'm like, well, this is exactly what Brene Brown says. So I guess I'm making a video about Brene Brown. Who knew? I had no intention of it, but it's just, <laughs> I arrived at the idea. Brene Brown is there. That's what I'm making a video about right now. Isn't it amazing? And that's a great example of how like anger was such a gift. And so just like you, taking it back to what you're saying before, I do believe when I'm in my most zen grounded place, when I'm in the throes of despair, not, I don't know, you can't count on this, but yeah, pain is such a gift. Pain has been unlocked my greatest triumphs and my greatest, greatest creative works and my greatest, you know, advancements as my own human world, right? Have come through pain, but ugh, 
I don't know. I also, I acknowledge the privilege of my own experience as to why I can sit here and say that it was such a gift because I, I you know, even that is privilege, yeah. but there we go, baby. There we go. So what is most vulnerable for you right now? Well, I would say launching my shit. It is very vulnerable for me to not, I have that same feeling that the thing I'm accusing my friend who's like the successful leader of, I'm doing that now, right? Because I'm putting that, that pressure on myself that because I'm in branding, I better come out with the greatest brand that ever lived. I've just talked about, I have been pregnant with my new brand for long than I was pregnant with my daughter, like twice as long. If we gestated fetuses for 18 months, that's how long this people are sick of hearing about my brand pregnancy. You know what I'm talking about? You have that friend on like your Instagram grid or whatever. It seems that they've been pregnant for like three, four, three or four years. They just will never shut up about the baby they're about to have. That's me right now, Rebecca. So I need to get out of my own damn way and actually be vulnerable in being a branding expert, putting out a brand that I am not totally satisfied with. The only, and that's why I gave myself the final deadline of September, because the only way now to be vulnerable is to do that, is to do it, is to just freaking do it and stop making really wonderful introspective Instagram posts about what I'm learning about myself during branding. I've done it. I've said it. It's time to actually beta that shit. You know what I'm saying? Vulnerability is action. I don't know if I, I might have to think that through, but it, it is because it's, it's just, you know, Brene defines it as risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. And so, but it is, it is, yeah, it is the path there. Um, what's vulnerable in your life right now outside of work? Yeah, man. Who's, whose life isn't falling apart, right? Um, you know, I think one thing that I've been facing this summer that was kind of like the bridge between um, what I was telling you about when I, when the pandemic first hit and I was doing a lot of self-destructive behaviors and drinking too much and eating too much and just indulging and sp- like allowing myself to spiral, like in- enjoying the pain a little bit too much, if you will. Um, the bridge back over to taking care of myself came through having a lot of fights with my husband and having to finally put the mirror on myself and start taking some freaking responsibility, right? So getting out of a victim mindset of woe is me and I have no control almost over what's happening to me to finally being saying, okay, wait a minute. I may have been victimized, but I am not going to sit and allow myself to believe that I have no way out of this or that I am not an agent of the change that I need to see in my life. So taking responsibility um, has been... What I would say, the way I would describe how I'm acting vulnerably right now, right, is that I is to continue to look in the mirror at myself and take ownership. And this is also my journey as a human being, just in general. I'm always coming back to this in my life on greater and greater levels. But yeah, and just just you know, to continue, I think to avoid the urge to make rash decisions during this time, you know. Just being here now while being radically responsible for my own liberation is my current state of vulnerability. Ownership. Yeah, really looking in the mirror, really taking responsibility for our lives. And like what you said, belonging to myself. That's how we belong to ourselves, right? That's what you said. It is. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm inspired from Brene's Braving the Wilderness, want to give credit where credit's due. And I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm pausing here because I'm thinking about this image I have of you in front of your elementary school, taking ownership of something that helps you move through your pain. And then now as an adult, you know, as you're navigating the most important relationships in your life, and, take, and the, really the way through is ownership. And that's seeing things that we don't like and feeling through the hard things. and you know, and, and just being kind and, and still showing up for ourselves. And, and, and even I'm just thinking my husband and I had a little tiff this morning, even I was, I guess he said I was peppering him. I didn't think I was, I thought I was being curious. Like, when are you going grocery shopping? When are you going to do the chores? I thought I was just being curious, but he's like, this is my quiet time. And I'm like, for an hour, you've been asking me. I'm like, I'm just planning my day. And the house is getting on my nerves. And he's, <laughs> and then he said, I forget what it was, but he's like, well, you do that to me. I think we started talking about shame. And it's like that because he's taking Brene's work to his classroom, doing Brene's daring classroom. So now he really knows it too. It's <laughs> what our kids must be listening to us talk. Oh my, I want, I want to know how I would have turned out if my parents had fights like that though, for real. Like, like I, this is shame I feel talking ashamed. right now. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I feel ashamed of this now. He's like, I didn't mean to. I'm like, don't, he's like, that's not shame. I'm like, you can't tell me my shame. Is it my shame? He goes, well, you do that to me. I said, I do not. He's like, no, you can't tell me my experience. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we just need a timeout right now. That but is I weird. think that, so then I was like, okay, pause. And I just walked away and I went hopped on my bike and did a Peloton class and then realized, yeah, I need to owe him. I owe him a big apology. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for people that can be the mirror too. It's so vulnerable when someone's holding that up that is really important to you too. Whether it's a client, whether it's someone in your family that you love and respect, that that is the work. That is a beast um, for sure. So one final question. You've talked about being in marketing and and really you're on a mission to use marketing for good which another thing I love about you because I think some of these things whether it's social media marketing I worked in issue advocacy advertising um, and really could see how these things could be used for good I see the harm also billions of dollars spent to get us to be afraid and spend money to make ourselves feel like we belong, right? But you want to take, you know, in essence, take back the sleaziness and manipulation tactics. And I still see them push it lights me up. So this is bold. And this is a needed mission. How do you want to transform marketing and use it for good? Talk about how you use like, like you live these marketing values in, the, in your business. You know, part of the rebrand realizations that I just described earlier was this question and kind of getting dialed back into what I now describe at this phase in the journey as marketing <laughs> in pursuit of meaning. I talked to somebody else yesterday who was like, okay, so tell me more about meaningful marketing and the, the meaningful marketing that you're doing. And I'm like, no, there is a distinction here because I don't know if I'm doing meaningful marketing. I am now at a place in my career where I am practicing marketing in pursuit of meaning and the mm. and, and in pursuit of marketing as a tool for culture making, marketing as knowing that marketing is all around us now more than ever with the internet, that literally we are just saturated in con everyone. I, I joke monetize everything, but, but, it's now that's becoming the way that we all have to monetize everything in order to survive in this crazy world, right? 
So if we know and surrender to the fact that we are going to be surrounded by marketing messages for the rest of our lives, then I am now newly committed. I don't, I think I spent the first 11 years of my career wondering why I ended up in this damn industry, feeling ashamed that I did thinking Mm. I'm a radical, like I'm a radical anti-capitalist feminist, right? That ended up in marketing. I went to law (laughs) school. I went to seminary, both of those things, hoping I was going to change the world that way. And then decided, nope, to both of them and ended up in marketing. And I've just this summer, just now, realized, oh, it wasn't an accident. There's lots of ways that I could have possibly pursued my life's purpose. I think the purpose would have been the same no matter what. This is the medium for that because we are surrounded by marketing messages and there is no way out. And I'm not just interested in marketing that isn't damaging. I'm interested in and the art form, the plight, the pursuit of marketing as a way of making the world better. When you say, what does that look like? I don't know. I'll tell you in 10 years. I'm just at the beginning of what I feel is a new grounding in that purpose. But I'll tell you what, this, you, you, I sent you this person's book um, earlier this summer. Ron Tite um, is the head of an agency that works with multinational companies. And he wrote this amazing book called Think, Do, Say all about helping companies identify and then live their values. He put something on LinkedIn the other day that gave me so much, uh, it just spoke to my soul about this very thing. He said, Patagonia, the brand Patagonia is slowly turning into an activist brand that just happens to sell green products versus a green brand that just also happens to have activist values. That's how I see my, my, my career going forward is an activist brand that just happens to sell marketing services, right? Versus a marketing brand that also is committed to activism. And so now the next part of the journey is figuring out what the hell that means, right? And that's what I'm going to do. I'll talk to you in 10 years. (laughs) I look forward to that. And I think we're going to have conversations before the next decade because things are moving fast. Things are moving fast and we need change and yeah, this is You're right. Is 10 exciting. years in internet speaks mean I'll talk to you in 90 days, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's warp speed. You know, I, I'm sitting here thinking about Patagonia because I, I did see like they have a, their new little tags that say, you know, vote the assholes out in, in their like little size tags, like when you go to see what size it is or what it's made of. And that's been catching some press, but that's an interesting reframe in terms of greater good is if that's the overall mission where this is interesting too, because profit and bottom line are still essential. I mean, to have a business, we need to have profit and we need to be able to, you know, pay people and, and have resources to give back. Where do you, where do you, because a lot of people have Mm. you know, issues Mm. around money and profit. This is the question. This is the question. So I might change my mind about this. I'm open because I, because I've just recently slid into what I think is my belief on this. Today, I can tell you this is what I believe, Rebecca, which is that I think up until now, what I've seen most ethical, self-described ethical marketers try to do is sell to their audience the idea that I'm going to show you a better way to market, but you're going to make the same money you would have made the other way. I'm going to show you the non-sleazy way to build your business, but don't worry, you're still going to make as much money, if not more, than the dick way, right? And I would say that's a lot. 
And I would say, as long as we want to believe that lie, we're just recreating the same system. And our so-called ethical marketing is just a way of us feeling better about ourselves, right? We're just buying carbon credits for our own, you know, just doing the same damn thing, right? So I would say, I feel like the change that I want to be part of creating is to redefine profit. Now, I think we can all agree that money is a tool that we use in this system that we all live in to survive, right? And so there is a degree to which we need money and money is part of profitability. But as long as profit comes before people, right? Then no, I'm not an ethical, and that's what I'm building. That's the business I'm building. That's the lie that I'm feeding. I'm not an ethical marketer, right? So yes, we do need to to work. We we still don't live in a in a post capitalist society. We don't, and I don't know if we will in my lifetime. But I would like to be part of shaping the conversation and contributing to a greater consciousness and like normalizing the idea that maybe the businesses of the future we are going to start get we need to be not maybe they need to be putting people over profit and that means we're going to make less money and that we're going to realign our relationship with wealth and that's the answer man so yes follow me i will help you make money i have a very healthy mature business but i have no interest in helping you make eight figure how many figures is it when you hit a billion is it 10 11 i'm not going to make you help you make i don't we believe we should be helping people build billion dollar businesses. That's bullshit, right? Follow me and we'll make less money and you'll be a hell of a lot more rich. That's what I want to do. And on that note, Rachel, it has been a joy. This conversation has been a ride. I cannot wait for people to be exposed to you and so much wisdom in here. So much wisdom. Um, how can people find you if they want to connect with you? I feel like you can, everyone listening to this can like feel my energy right now. Just like put your finger up into the wind and you'll feel me. I'm coming to you. You can, <laughs> you know, find me. A good entry point is to go to awkwardmarketing.tv. That's my YouTube channel. It's a great way to begin on the journey. Just find some laughter. Just laugh along with me, making fun of what's wrong with marketing. And then you'll, you'll, you'll see the next step once you get there. Wonderful. And are, is there, other than your rebrand, is there anything else that you're working on right now? <laughs> other than just like belonging to myself? Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm going to cap it. I'm going to give myself permission. I think that's enough. That's it. That's that's and that's more than enough. <laughs> Good point. I'm with you on that. Rachel, it was an honor. I enjoyed getting to know you even better today. And I'm really grateful for your leadership, for your light and and for your courage and all you do. So thank you for showing up here and showing up consistently everywhere that you do. I'm really grateful for you. So thanks so much for this conversation today. The power of comedy is more than just entertaining. It can be a powerful catalyst for communicating in business. It is a memorable way of leading. It is an impactful tool for educating and advocacy. Humor is a glue that builds common humanity and it keeps us from taking ourselves so seriously while we're navigating really serious and complex things. Gosh, especially these days. Yes, when using humor as a leadership tool, there needs to be boundaries and a clear sense of culture around humor. As I say to my kids often, know your audience. While many hold an inner polarity around humor, like we're drawn to humor and the lightheartedness, but also fear not being taken seriously or being seen as not serious about your work. It's hard to dispute the impact comedy can have on our lives and communities. Rachel gave us a powerful window into our authentic use of comedy in her business. 
She shared with us how she uses comedy to help her clarify and find purpose in the things that cause her pain and rage, while also educating and inspiring so many through her comedy that calls us up and never belittles. How has humor helped support you in life and work? What stories do you tell yourself about humor and comedy that are holding you back from showing up authentically? How do you want to bring more humor into all areas of your life? Leading with laughter when done with intention and authenticity can offer much needed connection and community while doing the hard work, even the messy, uncertain work that we're all rumbling with these days. The weight of the world can drag the best of us down, robbing you of your joy, your optimism, your sense of humor. Yes, you take your work seriously, but you have a hard time shifting out of the grind of the drive of the intensity of your work and life. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you from enjoying life more and help put a pause on taking yourself so seriously. Leading today is not fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. <laughs>